Legally Blonde, Suits, My Cousin Vinny. All badass lawyers, all different. Which begs the question, what type of lawyer do you want to be? Don't waste another second thinking, ugh, I don't even know what types of lawyers there are. Trust us, we've been there. Let's put a stop to that once and for all. Go take the 90-second quiz from new lawyer now what coach Angela Vorpal to give yourself a clear picture of the best fit type law for you. Go to www.whattypeoflawyerquiz.com and take the quiz today. Once you've taken the quiz, send us a DM on Instagram to let us know what type of lawyer you got. We can't wait to hear. Hey guys, and welcome back to Ladies Who Law School podcast. I'm Haley. And I'm Sam. And this week we have a very special guest. She is a partner at her own law firm that she helped start. Please help us welcome our guest, Miss Jennifer Horn. All right, guys, please help me welcome our guest, Miss Jennifer Horn. Hi, Jennifer. How are you doing? Hello. Hi, Samantha and Haley. How are you? We are doing well. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. So I am from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and I grew up there, the daughter of two school teachers, and uh, never, no one in my family had ever gone to law school before. And I went to Penn State University uh, majored in political science and English literature. I minored in business and always knew from college age that law school was something I was very interested in. What made you know that you were interested in law? What I love about the practice of law is that you're giving voice to people or entities that oftentimes don't have the ability or the, the wherewithal to speak for themselves in the language um, that is heard by courts. As attorneys, we're officers of the court. And I loved the idea of adhering to the rules of professional conduct uh, and really affecting change in the community, in the world. And in, in Lancaster County and in Pennsylvania, um, when I went through law school, it certainly was not as challenging and as difficult as it was for my mother's generation or my grandmother's generation. Um, and there's still challenges that remain, but there is no way uh, I would be where I am today without standing really on the shoulders of the women who have gone before me. I, love that. I went to law school at Penn State's law school, which was called Dickinson. And then after that, I was tired of Pennsylvania. I needed a change. I love Pennsylvania. It's a wonderful state, but I knew that Lancaster County Amish country was not perhaps the easiest and best way to enter the career of law. And so my first job out of law school, my first real job was uh, in Washington, D.C. in Baltimore at a big law firm. And in those days, way back in the stone age of 
1990, you know, I don't want to date myself. Um, <laughs> the market was not like it is today. So people never asked you, what are you interested in? What kind of law would you practice? It was really, how am I going to pay my, my debt? How am I going to satisfy my loans? And I'm going to learn along the way. And the great thing for me about the big law experience was that I got to try a lot of different things. I tried products liability, antitrust litigation, um, defense. I was on the defense side. I was on the plaintiff side. I had a little bit of family law mixed in. And I was fortunate in that experience to be mentored by someone who did construction litigation. And when you try lots of different things, it really helps you understand what you like and what you don't like. Um, when I started law school, I thought, I want to be a criminal attorney. And it took me one summer having an internship at the district's attorney's office and really living and seeing criminal law to come to the realization that that wasn't the best fit for me personally. I felt and could never shake the feeling that at the end of the day, a crime was committed and it could be a violent crime, a less violent crime. But at the end of the day, the victim was still the victim and you could never bring those people back. And I felt with my personality, that was something that um, I felt wasn't the best path. I felt that if I went down that road, it would not be a good fit. No, absolutely. We can totally validate that and just tell you that you're not alone because we both thought when we came to law school that we wanted to be criminal <laughs> attorneys as well. And after one short summer, um, a little bit in the semester as well, we realized, man, I don't know if we can do this. I always tell people it was, you know, I really saw one of my, very gruesome things, right? And it, it just, I just didn't know, kind of like you, like you said, I don't know if I could maintain and uh, who I am as a person with all of that going on all the time. But at least you tried it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So let's go back to law school. You said you went to Penn State. Tell us about that. Tell us about your experience in law school. What were some of your biggest accomplishments and some of your biggest struggles while you were there? So I'm not one of these attorneys that like law school. Right. I was I was good at it. It all worked out. But I was never one of those people that looked forward to the finals, the final exam in torts. I was more interested in the experience of law, law school. And, and at Dickinson, Penn State's law school, I was so fortunate because there were many internship and other types of experiences. I was able to clerk for a judge while in law school. I was able to participate in some really dynamic moot court programs. And I wasn't accepted on law review. And it bothered me. And a, and a group of us uh, had, there were other journal opportunities there. And we, we formed a group to create the Dickinson uh, Environmental Law Review, where we were focusing only on environmental law. And we had to approach the dean of students at the time and go through a process to get that journal accepted uh, and and recognized as a legitimate journal at Dickinson. And I'm very proud of that because it really has been, it was a, an amazing experience. And in law school, my one bit of advice is if, you, if you're not seeing opportunities, don't be afraid to create them 
or make them on your own. Much like the two of you have created and formed this amazing podcast that would never have been imagined when I was going through law school, you know, the, the opportunity to connect. Um, I also studied abroad one year in law school. Uh, Dickinson had an amazing program for international law, and I was able to travel to Florence, Italy, and Strasbourg and Vienna and learned about other legal systems, which was really fascinating. So you started a journal at your law school. That's incredible. I mean, I can't even imagine. I I mean, I would say like us starting the podcast, you know, is kind of similar in the sense, right? You had, but I love you talking about having to go and talk to the dean. And so many people don't realize that whenever you start something up, how much back work goes mm-hmm. into the product that you produce, especially with a journal. So do you know if that journal is still at uh, Dickinson today? I, I don't know. I know that it was a, there was a loose group that had formed. Oh, yeah. um, there were, there was another journal of international law, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, but it's important when you go through life, especially in any institution, not to, allow yourself to be boxed in as you move through the process. And I found Dickinson to be a very um, structured institution, but a very um, proud and it was, a, it was a wonderful place to learn the mechanics and the skills and the rules of how to be an attorney, uh, how to think like a lawyer. And that was, that was really great. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's why we go to law school, right? And Now I want to turn to practice. So you said that you felt really prepared and that law school had you, you know, learning the building blocks of law. What was it like when you got out and got into your first job at the law firm? You know, you talked about different types of practice work that you had to do, but tell us more about your first job and what that was like in the transition from law school to practicing attorney. I think I felt like an imposter and anyone who says they walk into that law firm on the first day of their first job and they feel like they, uh, they know what they're doing and they have all the answers and they know better. I think that person is in for a very short and emotionally rocky ride. Um, at the same time, I think especially women, especially women, are susceptible to that imposter feeling, even in this day and age when there's so many ways in which we can empower and support one another, that sense of feeling as if you're not, you don't fit in and you don't belong is something that uh, some women are really susceptible to and many are. Um, I believe you should fake it until you make it. You're entitled. You're entitled to try and you're entitled to fail. And every one of us, every one of us is going to fail and fail again. And it really is the cliche that your mother and your grandmother always says, it's how you react to that failure that truly builds character on your journey, whatever that is. Um, and I, you know, you, you learn as much from the failures in law as you do from the successes. Uh, There is a reason that we call it a practice. 
you think of practice like practicing an instrument. You know, when you sit down at the piano, you're never going to play that song the right way the first way. It takes practice. And you're never going to argue a case the same way every time. It's always going to be nuanced and a bit different. Um, and if you think of the practice as really more of an art than a science, um, I think that's extremely helpful. Oh, I love that. That was yeah, so was good. Such, yeah, so much. I'm just like I don't I don't know if you listened to any of the podcasts and I wouldn't expect you to, but we preach everything you just said and it feels so freaking good to hear yeah. it come from you. I mean, we're going to get in, into more of what you do now and how your practice has been and you're very successful. But just to hear that, you know, as a, you're coming in that you felt imposter syndrome and faking it till you make it. I mean, I can't tell you how much relief that gives me just knowing that yeah, every time I write a new memo and every time I write a new motion, it's practice, especially for baby lawyers. Yeah, we know nothing. Yeah. But for baby lawyers, I think your value is in the research, right? So when I would be given a research project, I remember Westlaw in the old days, I don't know if they still do this, would have a 1-800 number where Westlaw attorneys, right, would help you with their system and help fashion searches, right? So some firms, the culture is that you really can't talk to other people. And especially at a big firm, when the attrition is so high, there was sometimes a feeling that if you asked a question, you would be looked down upon or perceived as stupid, um, Everybody likes to talk about a collaborative environment, but some environments are not like that. So I recall doing research, being given an issue, and I would then call a Westlaw 1-800 number attorney and tell them what I'd found and ask if there were other or different searches to approach the problem a different way. And after you do that a couple times, you begin to learn how to research in ways that maybe you weren't taught in law school and you never accept the first call. I would always call three times because everybody's always helpful and wonderful, but each representative have a, had a really different way of approaching the problem. And when you came back around in a circular way to the same causes of action, the same leading case, the same defenses, the same conclusion, then I would have confidence because the research was so circular that I'd found the good, the best law and, and was making the best argument when, when I was thinking about research. So you would call someone at Westlaw and they would like give you tips on how to search through, through their search engine? Westlaw and Lexis have had, I don't know if they still do, but they would have 1-800 numbers that would help you fashion a problem. So I would do my research and think I had the answer. And oftentimes in large law firms, there's brief banks where people had done things before. But if I was unsure or if it was novel, I would call Westlaw and I would say, I've done these searches and I've arrived at this conclusion. Is there any other type of search that you recommend to help with this answer? Because those people, their whole job is to learn their own search engine. We learn Westlaw in law school in a brief seminar, maybe an hour at a time. That's a lot different than being immersed in it. Those professionals that want you to become appreciative of their product 
were extremely much so much more knowledgeable than I ever could have been. So when I approached the problem with the question of here's my thought process and this is a statute that I think controls, what other search could I do to come to that answer? And, and, and it really, for me, in the early, early days of baby lawyer land, gave me a ton of comfort because when I walked in the partner's office, I knew that not only had I seen the case, searched the firm's brief bank, checked my work, but I was also using all the resources, including um, others that were available, maybe in an unconventional kind of way. Love that. I'm really curious to know if they still have I'm that. I'm definitely going to look into yeah. that. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm, I'll I don't know. You- but when yeah. you, um, but the, the other issue too is oftentimes it's very difficult in legal research to understand what the question is and what the answer is. So before you left, before I would leave a partner's office, and even now when I'm giving research assignments to others, it's so clear and important to have the person repeat back to you what you think the question is um, and ask. So if I was being given an assignment, I may, I might ask, okay, what is, what is your dream case? If, if the law is the way you think it should be, what are you hoping to find? And being able to articulate it, sort of the answer and the question um, is, is really helpful. Absolutely. That is great advice, especially for us three L's who are about to be real baby attorneys, you know? Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, she is one of the, Samantha is one of the queens of legal research in my eyes. So I I mean, I know that, and I want to circle back to you talking about the circular legal research and kind of shoring up and giving yourself that confidence because you do know that you did your due diligence. That's basically what it boiled down to. Whether you can still call a, a Westlaw or Lexus agent or not, you can do your due diligence on your work product that you were going to give to the partner. I think that's just a great tip and a piece of advice for us to take with us. Let's take a quick break to hear about one of our sponsors, Thank you, BarCast Audio, for being our sponsor for the past two years. We've gotten to know you very well, and we can vouch for your product. If you guys haven't watched our Instagram live from the founder um, of BarCast on our Instagram, go watch that. We answer a bunch of questions. We show you how to use the app. But in the meantime, I'll tell you a little bit about it so you can check it out beforehand. So there's MBE lectures that are audio, like a podcast, and questions and also, here's some tea. He is coming out with MEE lectures. So that'll be out in like a week or so. Yes. And he's offering one-on-one services this summer for bar exam takers. So guys, get over to barcastaudio.com, add all the things that you want to your cart and use code ladies, L-A-D-I-E-S at checkout for 10% off. All right. Now let's get back to the interview. So let's talk about the different types of law that you practice. I know that you practice uh, in the real estate and construction law and do some title practice. So can you just walk us through, you know, what that looks like? In the Northeast, there's a major problem with home builders not following the building code. Hmm. 
And that has resulted in house after house after house being built with stucco. So picture a 3,000 square foot McMansion built by Toll Brothers or Pulte or Kehavninian or Ryan Homes. And in the inside, it's a family living there with beautiful furniture and clean paint and children. And on the outside, the lawn looks great and there is no problem. And then one day they're walking their dog or they're at the bus stop and they see scaffolding on their neighbor's home. And they say, what's happening with that house? And the neighbor says, I can't talk about it. They're not allowed because they're shut down with confidentiality. And they see the entire front sides and back of the home being torn off. Uh, Or in Philadelphia with new construction on row homes, builders such as Streamline and others not following the building code. So a large part of my work is helping families uh, have their builder fix their houses and stand behind their work. Uh, And oftentimes our firm, which has 19 attorneys and 39 employees, is the David to the Goliath of these huge builders who don't want to help the families. They're fighting at every turn. And they often push these matters into arbitration where people uh, often are not allowed to hear uh, what has happened to their neighbors and it's become an issue. So a large part of our practice is um, hundreds of families dealing with leaky stucco and bad Anderson windows. Uh, There's a huge issue with um, Anderson and MI and weather shield windows not being installed properly or failing for other reasons. And so that's what we do. Um, But every day we are in depositions and oral arguments where it's another person's job to interrupt us, tell us we're bad, put us down, um, and, and zealously advocate for the exact opposite of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and that's a challenge and an evolving journey every day. We'll be right back. Hey guys, we want to take a moment to talk about something that has been a game changer for us busy lawyers, Audible. Yes, Audible has been our go-to platform for incredible audiobooks, offering an extensive library of thrillers, nonfiction, autobiographies, and mysteries. And guess what? We've got a special treat for you. Audible is offering a free trial to our listeners, and all you need to do is check the link in the show notes. It's the perfect opportunity to experience the magic of audiobooks without spending a dime. Speaking of thrillers, I know you're currently hooked on Never Lie by Frieda McFadden. Samantha, can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. The twists and turns in Never Lie have kept me on the edge of my seat during the workday and even when I'm on my daily walks. It's like having a suspenseful companion wherever I go. And for those looking for some financial wisdom, I have been engrossed in My Money, My Way by Kamuku Love. It's packed with practical advice on managing finances, perfect for anyone trying to navigate the complexities of money management. What we love most is the flexibility Audible offers. As lawyers, our schedules can be unpredictable, but with Audible, we can enjoy our favorite books on the go whether we're stuck in traffic, hitting the gym, or waiting for a court hearing. 
So if you're ready to embark on a literary journey and discover the joys of audiobooks, click the link in the show notes to start your free trial with Audible. Trust us, you won't want to miss out on this fantastic offer. So let's go back to starting your own practice, right? So now we know what you do. So when did you decide that you wanted to have your own firm? You know, was it right after you were in big law or did you have, you know, did you, were you just solo for a while? How did that transition? So I was in big law, but knew that I did not want to stay in Baltimore and Washington, DC. And my family was back in Pennsylvania. Um, And my, I, I had a chance to come back to Philadelphia And I took it and I joined a firm that practiced only construction litigation. And I stayed there for 12 years and uh, became a partner there. Um, When you practice, uh, especially in a, in a niche area, there are conflicts. Uh, I was starting to get a lot of conflicts. If I would bring in a subcontractor, let's say on a job, the other partner might represent the general contractor. And this firm really did not want to focus on residential construction. And we saw, I saw the stucco problem and really wanted to help consumers and be on the plaintiff side of, of that, as well as to grow the construction practice. Um, and so when all of it came to a head and it was becoming known that this was a huge problem for families, I was able to start my own firm with a colleague and friend who had been in-house at a, uh, at a construction firm uh, and, and a construction practice there. Um, and I knew that I wanted uh, it to be a woman-owned firm. Being in construction, I saw the benefit of women-owned business. And I always dreamed of having the ability to create my own team to form my own firm. And that's how it started. And uh, Carter Williamson, who is my partner, we thought that the residential part of the business would be a very small part. And it turned out to be a tidal wave of families in need. And it it grew because our commercial clients stayed with us and to this day are with us. And um, it's been an amazing, amazing journey. And Someone I had known as a mentor in the practice at another law firm called Peggy Underwood. She uh, was looking for another firm and could have gone anywhere in the city and chose to join us and brought with us an amazing book of business. And we really grew from there. And so now you're at 19 attorneys. We're at 19 attorneys uh, with 39 employees and the market now is so tight that it's so difficult to find. I mean, we could hire, we could hire more, but we're looking for the right fit and the right, right people to join us. But we're right in center city. So all day I stare out at city hall on one side and this park called love park on the other. And uh, it's, it's such a privilege to have that opportunity. And as much as I wish these builders would help the families and step up and do the right thing, um, you know, sometimes I am, I just, I feel so thankful uh, that I've been able to be a part of, of this litigation, of this process to be able to, to grow and develop in this way. 
So let's talk about growing your firm a little bit. Um, when you started, I know you said you added a third partner or a third was she a partner or associate when she joined you? Um, so I am 99% owner of the okay. firm. Okay. And my colleague is, is 1% owner. Um, but we are now looking to kind of restructure the firm from an LLC to other, to, to something else. Um, you know, it's starting your own firm. It's important to understand what you don't know. So I know that I didn't at the time understand IT or the importance of how IT worked or what really accounting, what, what accounting was and how important an accounting partner was and an insurance partner. I didn't know how to get uh, a good um, office space that would fit. I didn't know any of that. And so that was a, a real learning process. And it's so important to delegate and focus on what you know and what you what you love. So I know construction. I know contractors and subcontractors and how to get paid and how to win a case um, and, and build the practice and build the team. But I'm so fortunate to have people with me who focus on those so critical pieces that is, you know, getting paid, getting bills out, um, having insurance protection. Um, we connected with an amazing IT firm that uh, allowed us to um, have cloud protections uh, that when we were vulnerable to a cyber attack, we were able to stave it off in an amazing way and hardly have any impact um, where other firms were debilitated. So it was a, it was a very um, kind of fortunate and, and lucky process. So when you're hiring attorneys to work at your firm, um, what are like, are they right out of law school many times, past for? interns? Are they people with experience, you know, or a mix? And what is your advice to a law student who is looking for a job? You know, like what would you look for in a potential hiree? So for us, it's a mix. Um, we're looking for people with, with collaborative attitudes who are smart and are not afraid of a hard day's work. But when things go wrong, which they always will, inevitably, something something will go wrong, that they're a team player and they have accountability. Um, again, I go back to really, you can tell so much about your team as by how they respond to different challenges. Um, I would say to... Uh, to women who are looking for work, ask for more money, right? Don't apologize and don't be afraid to interrupt. You, you need to listen, 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 but stop saying I'm sorry, right? Please stop saying you're sorry um, and, and don't be afraid to interrupt when you have you have an idea or a thought that could contribute to the process, because what I what I have noticed is many times men don't have that um, that that hang up that hold back, and they won't be they, they will they will interrupt and speak and talk over you. Um, so I would I would give that advice. I mean, I think when you're applying for work. Employers want to see that you're genuinely interested in construction 
or generally interested in helping consumers with their home. Um, we have a partner that does only zoning and land use. If you're hire, if you're being hired for zoning and land use, you should know what the zoning code is. You should have some sort of demonstrated knowledge about the zoning code. Um, and if you don't have read about it on the internet, um, we have another partner that only does homeowners association um, and is an amazing attorney who does great, great work all over the city and the surrounding counties. And his job is to help presidents and HOA boards administer the environments of, of their residents and the owners of different houses. So, you know, certainly during COVID, every practice changed for from our perspective because people were sheltered in place in their homes so for them the home became even more important they noticed things about their interior environment and their neighborhood that they hadn't before um, they became more connected with neighbors that were sort of in their immediate proximity and valued and I think appreciated their environment in ways that they hadn't prior to the pandemic yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. I mean, we were spending so much time in our home. I think it's inevitable that you're going to start to notice those things. Um, so did you say that that really drove business during COVID? So we have we have had the, the continuous problem of too much work. We've, we've, we've never had, and starting a firm, I always thought, would, would we be able to make a living would it work? And the opposite is, has always been true. We've always had um, the luxury of picking the cases that we wanted to take, turning away cases that we felt weren't a good fit. Um, for our contractor clients, the supply chain delays have been tremendously hurtful. Um, roofing costs, for instance, have increased 45% just since December. So when we're looking at roofing remediations and, and bidding out work, that has a trickle-down effect on the rest of the project. The delays of actually getting materials and product um, have had a tremendous impact on the pace of work. There is a clause in contracts, construction contracts. It's called force majeure. And it's something we'd always teach and talk about uh, to contractors, but it wasn't until the pandemic that people realized, gosh, that is, we, we paid so much more attention to that clause because it really was a major impact effect, like a war uh, or a pandemic, something that's out of your control, a hurricane that just takes control of, of the project in a way that was totally unexpected. Wow. So, to me, my takeaway after like hearing you talk about working and the firm, you decided to go out on your own because there was a type of work that you wanted to do that maybe you couldn't necessarily do at the firm. And as you grew your firm, you were very intentional with who you picked to work with you and who joined the firm and it, it, it all is around homes and construction, but so many different facets. And mm -hmm. I really think that that speaks to the fact that, you know, the delegating and you don't know what you don't know. And you're clearly a very smart woman in the fact that you 
go and look for these other people and women. I, I just thank you so much for being that way and for setting such a good example for people like Samantha and I and so many of our listeners to want to grow a culture and an environment that you can be proud of, but that it's also like kind of a roadmap, just talk the way you were talking about that. So would you say that that is kind of what you were thinking whenever you were selecting different people? Absolutely not. You know, I, it was in, 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 in the moment at the time, my goal was to, to hire and retain the most qualified people that, that would be most helpful and useful to solving the problems. Um, and sometimes it, and, and it, it has worked out, but I can't, I would be lying if I said it was a grand plan, really. Um, you know, I, I think my advice for women coming out of law school right now and just starting the practice is start supporting other women now. There is no reason in the world that you and I and Haley can't be all successful, all three of us. It, it, it shouldn't be an issue where I'm comparing myself to you or, and I say, I think sometimes women tend to really uh, not support other women in meaningful ways. And there is a place at the table, a seat at the table, enough seats for all of us. And so it's, it's very important to um, be able, be able to do that and start and start now as a baby lawyer, Starting out in Philadelphia, I went to a, a National Association of Women in Construction, and I met other people just starting out, but in construction. And over the years, just through that organization, those women have grown up to be leaders in construction in Philadelphia. Um, I think of one amazing woman, Mara Hesden from Shoemaker. I first met Mara when she was a project manager and certainly did not know as much about construction as she does today, heading an amazing and wonderful company that we can now advise, uh, offer advice to. And that's that's just one example of of those relationships that that you should start thinking about and fostering now. Your law school classmates, men and women, men and women, are are people that you will cross paths with uh, when you least expect it. And whether you stay in your state like I did or you travel to another state, um, the connectivity of that law school experience, that geographic experience is something that will serve you well years to come, um, whether your practice is regional or national or beyond. Networking is key. I think it's great how you guys also have ways to network that that we didn't, you know, that social media, it's so much easier to remain connected to people despite geography um, in this day and age that that's, that's wonderful. All right, Jennifer. Well, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? And if they're in the Philadelphia area, maybe they want to network with you. Um, where can they, where can they reach out to you at? Are you on social media, LinkedIn? We are on social media. We're on LinkedIn. It's Jennifer Horn and the law firm is Horn Williamson. And I'm so thankful and grateful to have had this opportunity. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to, I think when, when you have your own firm someday, you're going to be asked to contribute to your community. And it is so critical that you do that. We are helping girls on the run. I have two daughters and 
the little one is doing Girls on the Run. Um, my partner, Mike Hayes, does um, work with the Homeless Advocacy Program in Philadelphia. That's amazing. And those kinds of efforts and, and contributing in a pro bono way to offering up your legal skills for charity is something that has to be a part of your life at every phase of development. Great advice. This was so great talking to you. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much. Very nice to meet you both. That was so great to hear from a female founder of a law firm. It's also really interesting, the type of law she practices. Yes, I know that my firm does a little bit of construction law, but I've never touched any of those cases. So maybe I'll take a little gander and see if I'm interested because it did sound pretty interesting. And and like I said, uh, well, like Haley said, it's so nice to hear from a female founder of a firm. She does have an Instagram and we'll link it in the show notes so you can check out the firm Insta. And it's just awesome, you guys. Yeah, it's also really cool how she got into the practice and is helping so many people in the Northeast. Making, I'm trying to pretend like I'm looking at a map, making sure I'm saying where it is. But yeah, it was so great to talk with her. Make sure and reach out if you have any questions. Connect with her on LinkedIn, especially if you're in that area. And yeah, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as we did. As always, go check out some merch. If you are going to be taking the bar exam this July, go get yourself a bar exam sweater or bar exam crop top. They are very cute and it'll be sure to, you know, anyone who reads it is not going to talk to you, which is good. (laughs) You don't want anyone to approach you while you're studying for the bar exam. No distractions. Yeah, guys, make sure and check that out. And if you're not taking the bar exam and you're getting ready to go to law school, still check out the merch. We have a ton of fun Elwood stuff. We also have some fun stuff coming out for our LSAT takers. So make sure and subscribe to our website. And we will talk to you guys again next week. And follow us on Instagram as always. Bye. Bye.